Hello, and welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. The goal of this podcast is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their communities. The host of the Organizing for Change podcast is the coalition coordinator for Avon, Massachusetts, Amanda Decker. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege to hear the incredible Dr. J. David Hawkins, Professor of Prevention Emeritus and Founding Director of the Social Development Research Group. Delivered as a TED Talk-style presentation, the following recording was taken with permission at the 2017 Massachusetts Statewide Conference for Substance Use Prevention. After listening to Dr. Hawkins, I knew we just had to make a way to share this prevention gold with all of you. You will hear Dr. Hawkins reference some of his slides during the presentation, and don't worry, we will post a link for those in the show notes for you. Dr. Hawkins' research focuses on understanding and preventing child and adolescent health and behavior problems. He seeks to identify risk and protective factors for health and behavior problems across multiple domains to understand how these factors interact in the development of healthy behavior and the prevention of problem behaviors. He develops and tests prevention strategies which seek to reduce risk through the enhancement of strengths and protective factors in families, schools, and communities. He is the co-developer of the Communities That Care Prevention System, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, and he's authored numerous articles and several books, as well as prevention programs for parents and families, including Guiding Good Choices, Parents Who Care, and Supporting School Successes. If you find today's episode helpful, please consider sharing with a coalition member, colleague, or a friend. And now to hear Dr. Hawkins. Those of you who know me know my father was an Irish immigrant to this country, and if he were here, he would say this to you. He said, I'd like you to meet my, law, my son-in-law, Dave. He's a doctor, but it's not the kind does you any good. <laughs> I've been trying to live that down for a number of years, and I want to come back to the topic of prevention this, this morning because I want to show you some things that uh, have been happening in other states around this country. Uh, we, if I could make this go forward, I would. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I want to talk about uh, another commonwealth, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Between 1907 and, and 2000, I'm sorry, 2007 and 2013, how do I get this to advance? Oh, I got a lot of advancing to do. <laughs> so arrests for juvenile crime rates went down by 29% in Pennsylvania during that time period. Uh, if you look at institutional placements, delinquency, delinquency placements in that period of time, they went down by, whoa, is this the best we can do? Uh, by 49%, 45%. And now, uh, if you look at those changes over time, what you'll see is that Pennsylvania is spending $85.5 million less every year on corrections of juveniles, on institutionalizing juveniles. That's $85 million a year less. Uh, 
So how do they achieve these changes? I would like to come back to the topic of prevention this morning because they achieve these changes largely by investing in prevention. Next slide, please. Uh, uh, I want to just start with my story. I started out as a probation officer working with delinquent kids. That's what I did. I worked with delinquent kids. The kids that I worked with had found the reinforcing properties of drugs. They liked to get loaded. And then they liked to break into places and steal booze or steal drugs if they could because that was what they had learned was reinforcing. And as, uh, as uh, Allison said this morning, once kids have had the re reinforcing experience of drug use, of the reinforcing experience of taking something from other people and not having a consequence, it changes their experiential basis. It means that some of them say, you know, I really like that. There are other kids who say, I could take it or I could leave it. But other people say, wow, that was what I was looking for all along. And we know that the earlier kids begin to engage in these kinds of behaviors, the greater is the likelihood that they will be reinforced by them and begin to move off the track of success in life and more towards the potential of problems. Not always addiction, but problems associated with drug use, problems associated with crime, like getting arrested and put in an institution, or like being involved in a drinking and driving accident. And so I left the field. I became a recovering probation officer. And I left with the greatest respect for people who work with kids who are already engaged in delinquent behavior. But I was asking the question, shouldn't we have done something before this point? I felt like I was running the ambulance service at the bottom of a cliff, and nobody had thought about putting a guardrail up at the top of the cliff. When I got into the field uh, in 1980, we did a study. How many delinquency prevention experiments had been done in America up until that time? There had been nine true experiments, random assignment, one right here in Cambridge, Somerville, Massachusetts. How many do you think prevented delinquency? All nine? Eight? Seven? Six? Five? How many was it? None. We didn't know how to prevent delinquency in 1980. And if you look at substance abuse, what, we, what did we do to prevent substance abuse in the 1970s? We got pictures of drugs and we got examples of drugs and we passed the marijuana baggies around and hope they got back to the front. We did fear arousal, scared straight. How many have seen scared straight on TV? Well, you know, what we learned from scared straight was that it makes kids more likely to be delinquent after they're yelled at by prisoners in the Rahway prison than if you had just left them alone in their own lives. Drug information, it increased curiosity. Wow, you can get high from that? I didn't know mom's got that in the medicine cabinet at home. I think I'll try it. So what we found was that untested good ideas can make things worse. Next slide, please. So what we had was this paradigm shift. And it actually started here in Massachusetts with heart and lung disease. Because people did a study in Framingham that said, if you want to prevent a problem before it happens, you have to address the predictors of that problem. What are the predictors of heart and lung disease? And today in America, we know what they are. Just shout them out. Predictors of heart disease. Cigarette smoking. High blood pressure. Diet high in fat. Sedentary lifestyle, right? And we have had a sea change in lifestyle in America as a result of understanding the risk and protective factors. Today in America, if you don't exercise, at least you feel guilty. We know we should do it. We know we should do that. 
and so we've had this this focus on a simple idea that Allison gave us earlier, which is if you want to prevent a problem before it happens, you have to address the predictors of that problem. And so what has happened in our world, in the world of substance abuse prevention and delinquency prevention, which turns out to be a whole lot of behavioral health problems, we've said, what are the risk and protective factors? Because if we could address those malleable risk and protective factors, we could change the developmental experiences of young people. Next slide, please. You're not going to be able to read all this, but I want to remind you that when we talk about substance abuse, delinquency, teen pregnancy, school dropout, violence, depression, and anxiety, both internalizing and externalizing problems, the very same risk factors predict those. In the community, if you come from a disorganized neighborhood where people aren't getting together to try to make sure that they can ensure this is a safe place for raising our kids, you're at greater risk for many of these health and behavior problems. If you come from a family where there is high conflict, remember adverse childhood experiences, really an extreme form of high levels of conflict or poor family management is child abuse and neglect. That's an adverse childhood experiences. ACEs are examples of risk factors for behavioral health problem. In school, if you lose your commitment to schooling, as so many of the kids that I had on probation had done, it's very hard to get that back, especially if you started to fail academically. And we know that there are individual characteristics, and again, Allison mentioned them this morning, the earlier kids begin to experience these kinds of things, like sexual activity, like delinquent behavior, and like initiation of tobacco, alcohol, or marijuana use, the greater is the likelihood that they will develop problems with those behaviors that will, in fact, disrupt their success in life. So that's the important part about reducing risk, but the other important part is about building protection. We heard earlier about, uh, uh, if we could see the next slide, please. We heard earlier about the importance of a resilient temperament, about young people being able to bounce back from adversity. My kids, Quinn and Nora, are peas from the same pot as far as I know. But my son, Quinn, if I, were, if I shouted at him or were angry with him, a few minutes later, he'd say, Dad, let's go out and shoot baskets. But my daughter, Nora, was from the Garrison Keeler School of Shy People. And if I were talking this loudly to Nora, she would go in her room and say, Dad's mad at me. It's a different thing. And she doesn't have, didn't have that normal, natural resilience that Quinn had. These are differences in individuals. We can help people learn the skills they need to solve problems, negotiate life, and be successful. But that's not enough. We also have to change the social environments in which young people develop. We have to ensure that all young people, regardless of what race, color, or culture they are from, have opportunities for active involvement in pro-social roles, that they have the skills to be successful in those involvements, and that they're recognized for their effort, for their improvement, and for their achievement. Because when kids are recognized for effort, improvement, and achievement, they start to say, I like these people who are treating me this way. It feels good to me. And if it's my teacher, I like school. And if my teacher says, good job, Dave, to me today, when I fed the gerbils or when I came in, or if my teacher greets me at the door when she comes in and says, hi, Dave, welcome to the class. We're really glad you're here today. I start to feel like, I like these people, I like this place, I like this teacher, I'm bonded, I'm connected 
I am part of this social unit. And then and only then does it matter what the standards of behavior of that unit are. Only then do kids care if Mrs. Reagan said just say no. If you don't feel bonded to Mrs. Reagan, you don't care what she says. But if you feel like you like your teacher in your class and your teacher says there's homework tonight, I want you to do this reading tonight, you're more likely to do it because bonding provides the motivation to live according to the standards. And what we haven't focused on enough in early development, starting with infancy and right on through the elementary grades, is ensuring that the conditions that promote bonding of young people to family and school and community are in place. Street gangs understand this better than you and I do. So you want to be part of this group? Yeah. What do I have to do? Beat up someone until they bleed. Okay? That's all you have to do. What is that? That's an opportunity for active involvement. And what do you have to have? A skill to be able to beat someone up until they bleed. And if you have that skill, what do you get? Your colors, recognition. You get the colors. And that means you're bonded to a group that doesn't hold healthy beliefs and clear standards for behavior. Our struggle is to bond young people to the opportunity structure that we need to provide for them. And we have to provide that opportunity structure for all young people. Because if we don't, we lose at the very beginning. If you don't have an opportunity to learn in school, you're done for in this society. There's only other ways to make a living and to be su successful. I want to uh, uh, just come back to something Allison said. She talked about having 15-year-old 15, 15 kids. And when we were, our kids were growing up, our kids are in their 30s now. But when our kids were growing up, when they were, when Quinn, our son, was a, a, a fifth or sixth grader, we participated in this parenting program called Guiding Good Choices. And Guiding Good Choices says one of the things you should do is have a family meeting in which you talk about what your standards are for behavior. We did this with Quinn when he was 11, and we all agreed that we were going to, that uh, nobody in this, in this family would smoke over the next year, and that, uh, and that only adults in this family who were over the legal drinking age would drink alcohol, and Quinn agreed to that. And every year we asked, you want to re-up? Every year he'd say re-up. And one, one day, and one the other thing about that rule was we all agreed that if we were going to change our behavior, we would talk to each other before we did. 15-year-old Quinn bringing dishes in after we had dinner together as a family. I'm there at the sink washing the dishes. And Quinn says, Dad, I'm going to start drinking. My heart fell, and then it came up because I said, he said, going to start. A policeman didn't bring him home. He didn't get kicked off the soccer team. It, 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 this is maybe a good opportunity. And so I started my litany, and I said, well, Quinn, you know, small body weight, smaller kid, it's a bigger effect about him. Not convincing. You know, Quinn, the, the younger you are when you start, the greater is the risk of not convincing. I went through my whole litany, the one that you and I, we all know the litany of why you shouldn't start early. And finally, I recognized that this protective factor stuff was really important. So I said to Quinn, Quinn, you under, you're 15. You're 15 and a half now. You're working on getting your driver's license. When you're 16, you're going to have your driver's license. And we've agreed that you could drive the family cars when you're 16. And we've also agreed that you're going to pay the difference in, in insurance that we pay for premiums when you're on our license instead of not. I've talked to the agent. That's $500 every six months or $1,000 a year. I'll make a deal. 
if you won't drink for the next year, I'll pay that insurance. He said, that's convincing. <laughs> My son re-upped every year subsequently for the next two or three years till he went off to college. And I said, you know, you're going to be in college. A lot of people are drinking. A lot of people are going to be drinking and make you a deal. Can you make it to 21? If you can make it to 21, I'll buy you a car. It may not be a new car, but you can have a car. He says, that's convincing. I want to tell you, I believe Quinn adhered to those policies because parents of his friends said, I saw the kids were at over our house the other day, and kids, some of the kids were drinking. I noticed Quinn wasn't drinking. Parents are telling me that. And I'm saying, that's good to hear. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that we can promote healthy development of young people. Now, I'm probably getting close to out of time. So let me just, again, you just have to just pr press the button. Just press it, press it. We presented all these things. Here's what's changed in America since I started in 1980 in prevention. We now have over 70 tested effective preventive programs in this country. And if you don't know this website of blueprintsprograms.com at the University of Colorado, you want to know this. You should write this first thing down. If you don't know about effective policies, you should look at the Surgeon General's report that came out this year on effective policies for preventing alcohol addiction drug addiction in America and problems associated with them. And if you don't know about the cost benefits of prevention, you should go to the Washington State Institute for Public Policy website. Every program that has been tested in well-controlled trials has been subjected by this institute created by Washington State's government. Uh, 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 has, has done cost-benefit uh, uh, analyses on these. I just mentioned two really quickly. I agree, first of all, I agree 100% with what Allison said. Starting at the beginning of adolescence is not as early as we should be starting. In Seattle, we did a program called Raising Healthy Children where we started with teachers and parents helping them create conditions for opportunities, skills, and recognition for kids. We followed those kids up into their 30s now. Actually, they're now 41 years old. We started them when they were six. We've seen remarkable reductions in mental health disorders, in economic uh, improvements in economic well-being, uh, reductions in teen pregnancy cut in half, et cetera, by starting in the elementary grades. But I want to just remind you that if you're concerned about opioid abuse, we already have tools in place, some of them are operating in this state, one of them, which is a curriculum called Life Skills Training, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, or 7th, 8th, and 9th grade, uh, that's been shown to produce $17.25 in benefits for every dollar you spent because it prevents kids from not only using drugs at the outset in the middle school years, but when they're 25 years old, they're less likely to have ever used opioids. Strengthening Families 10 to 14, a program for parents of kids of middle schoolers, how to strengthen the family as a protective environment for young people in that age group. You follow those kids up, age 25, significant reductions in opioid abuse 10 years, 12 years, 15 years later. We will not solve the, I'm just repeating something Allison said earlier, we will not solve the opioid epidemic unless we invest seriously in prevention. When you put life skills training together with strengthening families 10 to 14, you get a 9% reduction in opioid misuse by the end of high school. We have the tools to do this, but we aren't investing in them. Can I just see that? And so I want to show you where we are. 
in terms of our federal spending, because I know most of Massachusetts's money for prevention actually just comes from the federal government, not from the state, right? Look at federal spending has gone up. It hasn't gone up for interdiction in law enforcement. You folks in the back end are getting all the money, $15, $15 billion a year for a lot, a lot of years. Treatment, you guys over here, you've been doing better. Look at the red line, that's treatment. More and more investment until we're now just almost investing as much money in America in treatment as we are in interdiction in law enforcement. That's a positive move. And look at what's happened with prevention. Not even $2 billion out of all the money that we invest. And it's going down, not up. We are not using what we know to make a difference at the federal level. Now, I don't think, don't I need to stop now because you want to have time for things? Okay, so let's go fast to this. Uh, I want to show you what Pennsylvania did to get those outcomes because they bought into this idea that we need to invest in prevention. When Tom Ridge was the governor, he said, not only are we going to crack down on crime, we're going to invest seriously in prevention. Now, what they recognized is that you can't do a one-size-fits-all prevention for a state because different communities have different characteristics or different norms and values in different neighborhoods, different youth problems. Some places it's rich white kids using alcohol. In other neighborhoods, it's other kids being involved in drug sales on the street. Different levels of risk and protection and also we have different capacity and resources in different communities. So if you see the next next slide. There are two systems for helping communities be effective. How many people here work in a community coalition? You work in a community coalition. So what this is designed, these systems were designed to do, we can see both, all of this too, all this, all this. Next one too. No, you got to go back. <sighs> okay, that's great. Two systems have been developed and tested for helping people in coalitions be effective in achieving the goals of prevention. One of them is called PROSPER. If you don't know about PROSPER, I'd really encourage you to go to that website and learn about it. And the other is called Community Secure, and I'm a co-developer of Community Secure. I have no financial interest in it, but I did help develop it and was involved in the research testing it. If you, if you look at Community Secure, the key elements are just Community-owned and operated, that means the coalition is a fundamental foundation, all stakeholders in the community involved. The second component is data-driven. Communities that care uses data on the levels of risk and protection currently, avail currently available from surveying young people in the community to make decisions about what's the important thing for us to do next to reduce risk and enhance uh, protection community-wide. The coalition then chooses evidence-based programs that, uh, or policies that address the risk factors that are most prevalent in that community, and it's outcome-focused. Every two years or three years, they repeat the survey to say, have the risk factors gone down? Have the protective factors gone up? Are we reducing behavioral problems of young people as much as we want? We got to do a randomized controlled trial of this. It's in seven states across America. Uh, if you just keep rolling, we've followed over 4,400 kids since fifth grade. They're now 23 years old. We continue to follow them. If you look at what happens in communities of care compared to control communities, by the end of eighth grade in only three years, tobacco use was down by 33%, uh, alcohol use down by 32%, delinquent behavior down by 25%, binge drinking down by 37% among 
eighth graders. If you follow those kids up by the end of high school, you'll see significant sustained reductions over time. Next slide. So what Pennsylvania did is said, let's, let's import this and use this system in the, in, the, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and let's train lots of communities to be able to approach prevention this way. There are 65 communities currently funding uh, in, in Pennsylvania. You can see they're all, they're all over the place, although you will notice that both Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh are not as heavily involved. Sorry about the colors on this, you probably can't read it, but they follow the group, this is not my research, other people follow the group of young people forward over five years in Pennsylvania and compared the kids in the CTC communities in Pennsylvania to non-CTC communities in Pennsylvania. And what they found was delinquent behavior, self-reported delinquent behavior down by 10%, delinquent peer influence down by 10%, academic achievement up by 33%, as well as uh, uh, school engagements, kids liking the school. The next key was measuring risk and protective factors and outcomes in each community. Pennsylvania uses a survey called the Pennsylvania Youth Survey in which School districts over the years are invited to participate, and now over 400 school districts in 2017 are participating in this survey of all the 6th, 8th, 10th, and 12th graders in that district. You can look at the public school data from young people, all, they're reporting their own experiences, and you can say, this is what's happening in our community, and this is what we need to change. Uh, Different communities, this is one community. Uh, look at the elevated risk factors in this one are poor family management. Parents don't set clear expectations for their kids or monitor their kids. You can hardly read these things. In other words, a family history or a family uh, acceptance of drug use. Parents don't have strong norms against drug use. Go to another community in a, in a different part of the state and you see that there are more community factors that are elevated, community disorganization. One size doesn't fit all. We need to do the things that are going to make the biggest difference in our community, given who we are and given the capacity that we have to make a difference. Next slide, please. The other thing they did was they said, we're going to use evidence-based policies and programs. And they set up a list of evidence-based programs and policies that they could support in Pennsylvania. That's the list. On that list, you'll see that life skills training I mentioned earlier. You also see strengthening families 10 to 14. These are all programs that you can find on the blueprints list that I talked to you about earlier. And, and they also put their own money in. That fund is dipped and increased, but they put state money into prevention. Some years, $20 million. Some years, $2 million. It depends on what, what was available and what they could get. But if you're an advocate, you've got to be thinking about, is this state really serious about the opioid crisis? Is, are we really serious about prevention? Because we've got to put our own money into this, not just federal money. Uh, next, next slide, please. This is the number of effective programs in 1999 operating in, in Pennsylvania in 1999. Next slide. That's 2015. That's the difference right there. The only other thing I want to mention is that, next slide, that they also invested in an infrastructure to provide training and technical assistance to communities in science-based prevention. If you look, they uh, have the epicenter there. And if you uh, go ahead, you'll see that their epicenter really provides training for broad-scale dissemination, high-quality implementation. How do you assess impact and long-term sustainability? Next slide, please. 
And that's what led to unions slip through these. That's what led to these outcomes that you're seeing. Next slide, next slide. And that should keep going. That should say 85 million. Now, you're not the only state that's, that's dealing with marijuana. Next slide, please. The state of Colorado legalized marijuana, and the governor said, we're not just going to sit on our hands with legal marijuana. We're going to make sure that it doesn't affect young people in this state. And so in 2016, Colorado adopted community secure operating system using the new technology of web stream training to introduce community secure to 48 communities across the state of Colorado. They're putting $9 million of tax revenue into prevention in Colorado. Next slide, please. And you'll see those, blues, those blue counties, those blue counties all have a community secure coalition now. The dark blue ones have two communities that care coalitions because they're two different communities doing prevention there. There are not a lot of great communities left in Pennsylvania. We're likely to see, and I would predict we will see, significant reductions statewide in substance abuse and related health and behavior problems because these people are doing evidence-based policies and programs to address elevated risk factors in their community. Moreover, what they've also done is to install a system of coaching in Pennsylvania to ensure that every one of those Colorado communities has the technical assistance they need to be successful. Uh, I'm going to just go on ahead of this one. Here are my recommendations for you all. First of all, I think you should be helping coalitions use evidence-based test and effective systems for prevention. The next thing, I think you need a statewide survey that doesn't just survey at the state level, but that provides information to each community about the levels of risk, protection, and behavioral health outcomes of young people. I want to encourage you to encourage the legislature, the Prevent, Promote Commission, and everybody else you can talk to as advocates. We need to invest some of our own money in prevention. Let's put any money we spend on kids, let's at least put 10% of that money into uh, effective programs and policies. And finally, Make sure that you have a strong backbone organization. You have MassTap. This is why we're here today is because of MassTap. Institutionalizing this capacity in the state through your own state resources is going to be a really important thing to have in place, in my view, if you really want to successfully get ahead of all the epidemics and promote the healthy development of all young people. Thank you. more information from today's podcast, check out our show notes. There you can find our contact information, social media, and website. Please get in touch with us if you have any comments or questions. And if you like today's podcast, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.